Hi, I'm Olivia McCollins, and this is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty and staff, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. With many shelves empty and a growing number of -of out-of-stock signs posted at grocery stores, we wonder when shelves will be fully stocked again. The COVID-19 pandemic has created challenges for manufacturers and their supply chains. I talk with Ananth Ayer about how COVID-19 precautions have compromised critical supply chains used to bring us all the necessities of life. Ayer is the Susan Bulkley Butler Chair in Operations Management and the department head at the Cranet School of Management. In our conversation, he also explains what it takes for products we need to be readily available on grocery store shelves. Then, in part two, we hear from Ellen Kosick, the Basil S. Turner Professor of Management and a research director at the Susan Bulkley Center for Leadership, about how the workplace has changed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. She offers practical advice for stressed-out, homebound workers and looks forward to new policy conversations that could result from lessons learned during the pandemic. But first, my conversation with Ananth Ayer. So uh, the supply chain view really is the following. So if if a customer goes to the grocery store, the customer is really generating demand because this is the person who pays for things. And everybody else really lives off this customer being willing to pay for something. So imagine that you go to the store, you've generated demand. Now the store uh, tries to make it so that your demand is satisfied immediately because the product is there, you pick it up, put it in your cart and you leave, right? So that's what, but that is, that is in some sense the last step in the supply chain because before that retailer got the product, there's a warehouse that that retailer owns that had purchased the product. So if you think, take an example, let's say, you know, let's suppose you go to Payless or Kroger, right? There's a Kroger warehouse that purchased the product. Now that Kroger warehouse has a buyer and that buyer has purchased it from a manufacturer. So there's a manufacturer who has produced the product. That manufacturer has a bunch of suppliers who supplied the ingredients. So if you look at the supply chain, it is suppliers, manufacturer, warehouse, retailer. So that link is the supply chain before you get the product. Now, you can think about that link and it sort of manifests itself a little differently for the different aisles in the grocery store. So one thing could be that pink tomatoes, for example, tomatoes get picked, they go, you know, there really isn't a manufacturer, but there's a farm. And from the farm, it, it might go through some cleaning, et cetera, goes to the warehouse, gets either gets packed or sold loose, comes to the retailer. So that's an example for tomatoes. But the same tomatoes can also go to a manufacturer where it becomes canned tomatoes or a pasta sauce or other things. Now the same tomatoes go from the field to a manufacturer. It gets uh, put in cans. The cans come to the warehouse and it makes it to the customer. So this is another path, but it also is a supply chain. A, a third path when it comes to meat is, you know, pigs, chickens, et cetera, they get grown and they get go through a processing plant. And from the processing plant, every one of these is a supply chain. 
And sometimes for fruits and vegetables, there's a global supply chain. Very few bananas are grown in the United States. Bananas are grown in various other parts of the world. They get imported and there's a supply chain associated with it. Uh, it's a little different for corn because corn is primarily grown in the United States. So uh, when you go to the grocery store, that point is really the end of a global supply chain. And I'm one of those people who always looks at, you know, where did these grapes come from? These grapes came from Chile and the bananas came from Ecuador and something else came from, uh, you know, uh, Costa Rica. And if you start looking around the grocery store, you see items all, from all over the world. That's the, that's the supply chain. Now, what I've described is what's called a physical supply chain. That is goods going from one end to the other end. But there's another layer, and that is the information supply chain. And the information supply chain really consists of orders. So the retailer orders from the warehouse. The warehouse orders from the manufacturer. The manufacturer orders from uh, the supplier, et cetera. And along with these orders are really forecasts. So I have to tell you in advance what I need so that the goods are available when the customer shows up. So whatever items are there in the store, somebody had already purchased it. Nobody checked with the customer whether they're going to show up. They purchased it and held it in the store. So that's why there's a lot of forecasting involved. And that forecasting associated with is business risk. So associated with this inventory to make life easy for the customer, somebody took the risk to anticipate that so many customers would show up. They placed an order in anticipation. Somebody filled the order and all the inventories waited. So there are two flows, what I call physical flows and information flows, which really are the, the heart of supply chain management. And from your yes. explanation, I can see how inter interdependent everything is. Is that one of the reasons why there are sometimes delays? Yes. So there are two parts. So one of the reasons, so, so one, what, there are two pieces to it. Remember, I mentioned the information flows and the physical flows. So imagine that everything was fine and everything was in stock. And all of a sudden, customer decided they're going to buy more. Okay. And this happened in March. People decided they wanted more toilet paper, more hand sanitizers. They wanted stock up, et cetera. Well, nobody told the retailer how much people were going to buy. So one reason that you sometimes see a stock out is that demand increased, but the supply didn't increase. So then you see a stock out. Right? So that's one issue that happens. Uh, the second is, as you said, that the retailer orders from the manufacturer, but the manufacturer does not have the ability to satisfy the order. It just says, give me some more time. So we call these demand supply mismatches. And whenever that happens, it's possible that you have a stock out. So whenever people see a stock out, it's this combination. People were buying more and that wasn't planned for. And supplies were, supplies were, were not as much as required. Now, what happens in the system is, remember, the goal of the system is to sell product. Nobody in the system does not want your money. Everybody wants your money, right? So it's not as if they would voluntarily not have product. It's just that they're trying very hard. So what does trying very hard mean? Uh, the moment demand went up, manufacturers started running multiple shifts. They started running their equipment at faster speeds. The truckers started 
running more shifts. The Department of Transportation relaxed some trucking regulations so truckers could work longer every day. A lot of things happened to accommodate this increase in demand. But one thing that everybody wants to be careful is that they don't get ahead of themselves. They don't start seeing that, oh my God, I'm going to sell 500% more volume. No, what happened is what would have been inventory in the retailers now is sitting in people's closets and their basements and so on and so forth. So everybody has stockpiled products. It's almost as if every one of us has a little mini warehouse in our homes. And we're worried that if we can't leave, then at least we can eat for the next two, three, or I don't know, four weeks or six months or whatever it is people have decided. So that is the adjustment. Now, the way the system operates is that it's constantly checking whether uh, its forecast matches reality. So, so, and the way it, it adjusts is by adjusting the frequency of delivery to the retail store. So if the retail store is, let's suppose it was getting deliveries once a day and people were buying and everything was in check. Now, all of a sudden we realize we run out by noon. The fact that we run out by noon means we reorder twice a day. And then we run out faster. We reorder three times a day. So the way the store keeps in stock is by adjusting the frequency of truck deliveries. Now, of course, for the trucks to deliver, the inventory has to be somewhere in the warehouse. So those are the pieces that get synchronized. So in the system, basically, when demand increases, the system tries to adjust to satisfy the demand. Then it remains that state. I'm hopeful, just like all we're all hopeful, as we get closer to whether you call it a normal or a new normal, new sort of demand rates will adjust and then people will adjust correspondingly and the system will adjust back down. So that's, mm-hmm. so that's why you see some temporary mismatches, you see stockouts, but you'll also notice that the system catches up. And in many cases, uh, most of the things are available back in the system. Now, one thing that customers can do which can to help is the following, that uh, in many stores, there is the option to order ahead. You know, Walmart has click and collect, uh, Kroger has, you know, Payless has its own option where you pick up from the store. And click and collect is actually something very good for the retailer. And here's what happens. You pay in advance for goods and you tell them how much they need. They schedule a time two days from now for you to pick up. You've basically eliminated all the risk for them. You've prepaid for everything. In the past, they had to produce, they had to buy and keep it for you, not knowing what you'd buy. You've already told them what you want to buy. You've already given them their credit card. It's really, it's actually a more profitable option for them. And if everybody shifted to online, all our retailers would get more profitable because they know in advance what you need. Everybody has placed their order in advance. They total it all up and they say, here is the amount of flour they need. Here's the amount of bread they need. Here's the amount of milk they need. All I do is schedule for it to come and you go pick it up. Now, they've done a little more work because what they've done is they've actually picked the items, aggregated it. They brought it to your car, put it in your car. Agreed. But their life actually got a lot easier because they're not forecasting. They know with certainty what you need. In many cases, if you allow substitution, they get to substitute what you get. You know, you wanted to buy Campbell's tomato soup, but you said allow substitution. They you, they give you some other soup. So this way, they get to suggest products to you. 
So, uh, and now with the, with the pandemic, the fraction of people who are ordering online and picking up the store in many retailers has gone up by a factor of three to four, a factor of three to four. So close to maybe 30 to 50% of the people are doing that. That fraction used to be under 10%, right? So this all happened in the last six weeks. So one thing to think about is, you know, we all got used to, as an example, I wasn't somebody who would order online and pick up before this happened. Now, virtually everything we do is there. And if you go to the website, just like Amazon, it keeps track of everything you had ever ordered. And to reorder, you can just click, click, click. And so grocery shopping became like ordering from Amazon. Because when I go in there, it says, oh, by the way, you had ordered avocados and you had ordered these vine-ripe tomatoes and you ordered this. Do you want them again? And I say, oh, it's so easy to shop here. I just do click, 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 put it in the shop. Now, what made it easy for me also made it easy for them. So the one thing, and I think this is worth accepting, that the entire system adapted within six weeks to have all of those new things and all of these new options. And whoever thought that I could have an app that I could click the button that will allow the store to track me and I didn't need to call them when I pulled into the parking spot because they already knew that me with my smartphone is in the car that came to the parking lot and it just goes and drops it up. Six weeks ago, I never used it. Now when I go, a lot of people are using it. So I think it's worth sort of understanding how quickly everything adjusted, despite the fact that I fully accept, you know, these things happen. Now, the one detail in all of this, all of this sounds like a great Pollyanna story. But one, thing, one detail, which I think is important, is if you had vulnerable populations or there was a digital divide and people didn't have a smartphone and didn't have Wi-Fi, none of this helped them. So that's one thing to be aware of, that you know, while we think, oh, great solution, you know, I could click on my app. Well, what about somebody who doesn't have a, a cell phone? What about somebody who didn't have the cash? And there were some adjustments regarding any SNAP recipients and all of those things. And one thing to be aware of is that in all of this excitement, we don't forget that there is a vulnerable population and they have to be taken care of. And perhaps uh, some processes have to be take place. And you know, while everybody's shopping, they should be aware of the food banks and other things. So I think that's the part I do want to acknowledge Ayer shares what manufacturers would need to consider when preparing for the future. One thing is that companies would have to care about the health and infection risk to their employees. And uh, to me, if in fact everybody gets separated in the sense that, you know, you have to maintain social distance, and then we'll have to rethink processes where only one person will be working at one workstation. So in order to do that, if, for example, two people were working because the items were heavy, we'll need some assistive robots to help people. So that's one. The second is that uh, social distancing. If you have automated ways of informing people, hey, be aware, right? That's to protect that individual's health. Then if there are surfaces people are touching, if we basically inform people, hey, after I touch it, it's quarantined for a period of time before somebody else touches it. So uh, we've been actually exploring some technologies within Purdue that we can develop 
to make it easier to, uh, to, to protect the employees and their health. But at the same time, there are many other things that happen, including onboarding new people, training them, teaching them how to do things, et cetera. All of those two technologies can help. There's augmented reality tools, you know, all kinds of tools that can be used for collaboration. So what, I, what we think is that these are all tools that were available. Now there's a reason to adopt them. And we think that adopting those tools will permit people to respect the infection-related requirements to have people in the system while continuing to produce products. While the COVID-19 pandemic forces many of us to add our 9-to-5 jobs to our to-do lists at home, Ellen Kosick sympathizes with the challenges and offers advice. The Basil S. Turner Professor of Management in Purdue's Cranert School of Management understands the struggle to adjust. To me, this is not the new normal in that this is kind of forced telework. And what my uh, research has shown is that People have different ways that they want to organize work and non-work. And for some people, working at home is a blessing if they can manage boundaries. But this forced telework where you can't really get outside, uh, you you might have to be supervising kids' homework. I mean, none of us signed up to be homeschoolers. Uh, You might be juggling in a small apartment, conference calls with a, a family member that's also trying to work. So this is not the new normal. And I hope Purdue listeners will think about how they can make it work for them during this COVID crisis, and then uh, if they move forward, how to make telework work well for them if they hadn't been doing a lot of it in the past. Kosick, a married mom of four, has had previous experience with working from home. She says parents who try to do everything at once will wind up frustrated and ultimately less productive. So I, what I learned is you can't write a dissertation or a research paper, take a conference call and try and watch children. And so uh, some tips uh, that I've uh, learned was to have uh, a sitter if I could, or you don't have a sitter. If you have a family member that's on for a while while you're working and you trade off, that was one way that I learned was to focus uh, while I was working and to try not just work at the kitchen counter, But uh, actually, there was an old study by IBM that said if you have a door to your office, that's a really good way to start managing boundaries. So I've done a lot of work on the idea of boundary control. And I think when we work at home, we have to self-regulate how we manage boundaries. So I would uh, have a way with the family to signal when I'm on and when I'm off and what's an emergency and when do you need me. And, you know, I'd also try to not work where I relax. Like, so if I love watching TV or reading a book, let's work in a different chair and things like that. As a social scientist focused on work, family, and personal lives, Kosick says she hopes the current pandemic will start novel conversations about sick time policies and staffing strategies to make emergencies and sicknesses less disruptive. We are literally the only country, a major industrialized country, we be the United States in the world, that doesn't have paid sick and family leave. We do have the Family Medical Leave Act, and people often use that as much for personal sickness as caregiving for elders and children. And and we can see now with the pandemic that uh, in our U.S. culture, we, you know, if people 
don't come to work, we sometimes think they're slackers. Oh, they're not really sick. But we can see here now that working when you're sick can expose others to illness. And it also can mean that you might in the end have higher health care costs because you might get sicker. So I'm hoping that this will reframe the debate about the importance of paid sick time for everyone in the U.S. as a public good. And I'm writing an article now on the idea of uh, trying to uh, encourage companies to think about emergency staffing or backup staffing for those critical positions, because that's one challenge we face. You still need policemen. You still need nurses and doctors. And uh, we need to maybe think about ways to have people that might have recently retired or students that could, or others uh, that were working part-time to have this backup staffing system. Until those conversations begin, Kosick says families have to manage their new routines, working from home, and going to school from home. Kosick emphasizes the benefits of dividing tasks as much as possible and also reserving alone time to do something you enjoy. And many of the times just talking about availability and when we're on and when we're off will reduce conflicts with the people we live and work with. And then some of the tips like having transitions so we make sure we take a break as we're moving into one role or another, not trying to multitask all the time because for high value tasks, it's really hard to write a great paper or talk on the phone while we're trying to do something else. And then also uh, making sure that we do do something that we love when we're not working. And right now, you know, we're, we basically are cooking, cleaning, doing it all ourselves or for essential workers, working long hours and then coming home. And we do need to take time out, what I call time for me. So it's not just all work. It's not just all family. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There you can route to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a review. As always, boiler up. <laughs>